Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with my brother, Dr. Henry Fraser, and we talk about toilet smells, uh, how rich people smell, male motherhood, climate change, and then a whole bunch of caveats. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Uh, if you are in Sydney on the 2nd of November, I am at the Opera House doing the Just for Laughs comedy gala. And otherwise, as always, uh, my shows are available on my Patreon at the $5 subscription level. A lot of you have been downloading them, which I find uh, really lovely, except it always comes through as the discount uh, price. So I see how much money I'm not getting, <laughs> which is stupid. Uh, please, if you if you are around in Sydney, hit me up for a cup of tea. There are other gigs that I will be doing there. I'm also going to be in Canberra sometime around the 20th. Stay tuned to my Twitter for that, at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E, and the details of all my Sydney appearances will appear there. And then I'm back in London during December. I will be doing the Soho Run with Andy Zaltzman at the Soho Theatre from the 16th of December till the 6th of January. Um, thank you, everyone, who's emailed me, alicerfraser at gmail.com. Uh, it's really lovely to get your messages, as always. Uh, some of you have just such interesting thoughts, and I, I love getting them. So uh, email me, say hi, uh, or message me on the Patreon platform. I check that regularly. And I'll always answer any questions that you have. I will see you next week. You're having tea with Alice. So who are you and what are you drinking? I am your brother, Henry Fraser. I'm drinking some robust with milk. Where did you uh, get the taste for robust with milk? Uh, I think I picked it up uh, on a visit to South Africa, staying with... Uh, my brother-in-law and his family. It's very mild. doesn't keep you awake at night. All the good things? Yeah, but it has that tea-ish feeling. The, the tea vibe. I'm drinking a rose puchong mm. from your, from your uh, tea cupboard, which is actually very nice. I, sometimes rosy, florally scents can be a little bit bathroom cleanery. You know, they can feel not... Not like edible things. Yeah, toilet tea. Toilet tea. I went into a bathroom the other day that had a sort of a bubblegum air freshener smell and it was the most horrifying thing. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I don't think a toilet thing should be food based. No, no. But they sometimes are sort of vanilla. So you go into the toilet and your mouth starts watering? But it's sort of, there's Mm, also the toilet smell underneath it and you're just like, oh no. And it's... It's always, so I don't mind a kind of a pine forest smell or like a sea smell or a cotton smell. All of those are, you know, non-food based. But then when they do do food based things, they're always desserts, never savoury. Oh. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> but why is that? I don't know. I think probably because they're easier to make a fake dessert smell than it is to do a roast potato smell. <laughs> I think probably because a roast potato smell would combine with the natural toilet smells in a more... It wouldn't really, yeah. So then, because part of what, you know, like the 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 message that's being sent by air freshener is not really that you can't smell. It's more the, the you know, the effluent is that they've made an effort and that it's clean like because they've got an artificial smell, so if it's too natural a smell, yes, then it, then it's suspicious. Uh, upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you just have have a delicious kind of like lemon and pepper chickens <laughs> <laughs> in the toilet. It's too close. 
they, but they're sort of all these odd protocols for things, the way things should smell in the world of artificial smells. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was thinking this uh, recently with a with a clothing uh, washing powder, clothes mm. washing powder that for me just smelled not right, like it just smelled a bit acrid or something. Mm. And no one else in who was using this washing powder had the acrid smell, but I could just smell it everywhere. And I went out and bought really expensive washing powder. So I would smell like a rich person mm. yes. on the assumption that it wouldn't have whatever this ingredient was that was making me feel like someone had spewed on everything. I wonder if people pick up on that cue subconsciously, like, oh, here's a nice, here's a nice rich person. Well, every sort of television-y type rich person I've ever met has smelled amazing. Mm. So I assume it's either because the men are rich enough to wear cologne or something or that their washing powder must be... I mean, cologne's expensive, but it's not that expensive that you have to be a multimillionaire in order to wear it. No, like, but, but, but television rich. Like, I read an interview about Brad Pitt once that was like, he smells amazing, and then another interview with George Clooney where they were saying, oh, he smells amazing. So either these are sort of these genetic abnormalities who never age, and therefore their scent is amazing, or else they just have really good washing powder. Or really good washing powder, or someone maybe they have someone who advises them on what smell to wear. Yeah, possibly a smell. Because it matters for them. A smell consultant. Ah, great job. Ah, uh, be a smell consultant. Yeah, but then also you know. Consultant. Remember, Dad, when he would come back from business trips, would sometimes bring back those like sample bottles of perfume. Jupe. Yeah, and they were sort of. Yeah, jupe pour homme, and and what was it? Um, deep water. It was Gucci and Jupe is all I remember. Gucci and Jupe, there was a Calvin Klein. We were introduced to the fine things very early. Yeah, but they never smelled very good. They smelled awful. They smelled sort of very tangy. Yeah. Um, If I go for scent, I do prefer a more sort of cardamom, spicy, sort of cinnamony, cardamony smell to a a citrus or a floral smell. Yes, I'm I'm not huge on floral. I I tend to lean sort of more vanilla-y and wood. So it's okay for a person to smell like food. That yes. would be the implication. Yes, it's okay for a person to smell like food until bits of that person leave that person's body. Yeah. <laughs> and then they have to smell like flowers or a pine forest. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't want a cardamom. <laughs> you like a really sort of spicy bathroom air freshener. I don't, I don't think I would necessarily mind a spicy bathroom air freshener. I'll have to do some bathroom smell experimentation. Mm. Uh, cinnamon candles and things like that. See what the least and most offensive thing <laughs> is and draw a graph. Remember at one point I was trying to do a, a three-second rule graph? No. Oh, I wanted to figure out the vectors on which... Uh, so like an M&M dropped on carpet, it's not a three-second rule. That's like a three-week rule. As long as the shell hasn't been cracked, you know, you polish it off on your pants leg and it's oh, fine. That's disgusting. But jelly in a bathroom... <laughs> this is a no second rule <laughs> well I think the whole three second rule thing is a myth I think as soon as it touches the ground it gets like billions of bacteria on it well as soon as anything touches anything it has billions of yeah, bacteria yeah I think there's also a bit like if you kind of like slightly shuffle and like kick the ground near where you're eating then you probably kick up billions of bacteria and eat them anyway oh yeah and your f- phones are filthy <sighs> yeah all of that stuff I mean what uh, that's what I've been wrestling with toilet smells what have you been wrestling with mm-hmm well, I mean, most notably, I've been wrestling with fatherhood, doing uh, being a stay-at-home dad. I hate the word. I hate the term. And I also hate the term. I hate the verb parenting, or even the noun parent, because parents so kind of 
artless. To parent sounds. Well, I am. I am being. You know, I am parenting. I'm being a parent. I kind of think the closest thing to what I'm doing is the, perhaps controversial, but I'm mothering. I'm mothering. You're mothering. I think that's a really interesting thing, like bringing that, not degendering the term mothering. Well, I read. I read a book. I can't remember, but I think some one of the one of the early-ish, mid twentieth century developmental um, psychiatrist or psycholo- psychologist was used the term about how you know he was one of the early theorists of how play is very important for children's development and everything. And he, um, he's yeah, he described the parent, the loving parent, the the kind of the the affectionate, nurturing intimate parent or both parents as the mother in terms of the just in terms of development so that the mother the child explores the mother's teeth with their hand and this is you know they they conceptualize space and they conceptualize moisture and they you know but that he used that term and I kind of thought yeah that is a better it is better and the mother didn't necessarily have to actually mean the the biological biological mother. mother it could mean anyone I mean, sort of in terms of technology, that is going to be an increasingly relevant term. I did this um, BBC series called Stranger Than Sci-Fi and one of the episodes was on artificial womb technology. Right. Which is basically getting there. They can do it with lambs now. Uh, but is it is this a womb outside the body or is it a womb that is put into... It's a womb outside the body. It's a plastic right. bag. Basically, uh, obviously, there are lots of subtle emotional things that happen between the mother and the baby in the womb that probably haven't been mapped in an adequate way, but certainly things like closing the gap in incubator technology, yeah. where very premature babies can be taken to term in... At the moment, they're in an incubator, but a womb, sort of womb-like environment will be available in the next 30 years. Really? Which means then, you know, you have questions about biological parenthood. Someone who doesn't want to have a baby could give up their child at the period of gestation at which you would ordinarily get an abortion and that child could still be carried to term and adopted by parents of the same gender or parents of, you know, so the question of who the mother is becomes com- almost completely disconnected from the biological mother. Mm. And all, like, the, all of that stuff's in the courts at the moment. You know, there was that uh, person who gave birth who wanted to have the, the birth record put them down as the mother. Like, all of those questions, like, we don't have to come down on a side on them. No, this, that, that was the person who gave birth when to change the birth certificate to say that he was the father. He was the father, yes. He identified as male. Yes. So that's a, that, but that's the interesting thing. If we sort of have a time now where the biological and the functional definitions are getting disassociated from one another. Yes. Like there is the mother that is the mother that is in a biological sense, mm. what, what it is, you know, to have a womb and all of that. And then you have the mother in terms of the carering parent. Well, having said, having said all that, I actually do, my experience has been, this is what I did want to talk to you about actually, my experience has been that being the male mother... Mm. <laughs> Or taking on that traditionally mothering role, as I am now, mm. while my wife is working full-time, is, is quite... It comes with challenges that are connected with biology, I think. 
Um, and I think it is. I think it's it. Not that it's not possible or desirable. I don't know whether it is or isn't desirable. Actually, I don't have an opinion. We're doing it anyway. But um, not that it's not possible because it is possible, and we're doing fine. And our little baby girl's great. But I do think it's harder than doing it the other way around, where the biological, where the father works and the mother is the female mother. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what about what are the specific things that you think are harder for you as a man being the mother? I think I think there just there's just a, a legion of small or not so small um, discomforts and inconveniences and. You know, for example, if the father is working full time, and not that it's necessarily a great thing that a father should kind of be absent and just working, mm. but if their responsibilities at work should turn out that way, that they've got a period where they've just got to work, and in an early point in the baby's development, I don't think it's, I don't think that it's terribly difficult to manage that because they're not breastfeeding. It's not to say that all women must be breastfeeding if they're working, but if you choose, you know, some and some women can't breastfeed for all kinds of reasons. But if you can breastfeed, the best thing for the child's health and for your bonding with the child and everything is, is to breastfeed. Mm. And so then, if you've got a breastfeeding woman who's at work, and then she's got to stay late, and then the child doesn't get a feed, or it puts a lot of pressure on her in the to get home in a way that a man doesn't have pressure on him. So it's harder for the mother. It's harder for the mother to be a, a working the, the 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 breadwinner than it is for a father to be, just because of that biological constraint. Mm. And even just having the milk, just if you are breastfeeding, you've got you've got boobs full of milk at work, and you've got to deal with that. Or you've got to just, or you if you don't, then you you've got to kind of accept that your milk supply will dry up. And then, do you want that, or do you want it like it's just. There's already, like, everything is just a bit, there's more friction for everything on, on that side for the mother. And then there's more friction for me, I feel, than there is for women in just all kinds of small ways. And do you think those are biological or social? Both. Like, <clears throat> like biologically, you know, they're, they're sort of trade-offs, but I feel like they kind of come out on the, they always come out in the red, for me, like for like for example, I'm stronger than Linda, and so I can carry the baby and pick her up and put it down and put her into the cot and all that and rock her to sleep more easily. But when I'm carrying her, because my skeletal frame is not a woman's skeletal frame, I don't rest her on her hip. I'm holding her up with my back muscles and my biceps, and and um, and I don't have that flexibility of the hips. And so if I'm rocking her and like walking around and bouncing her, I'm doing it with my quads and my knees. And so like over the course of the year, I've really messed up my knees. <laughs> Both of my hips are really messed up. My upper back is like super tight. My biceps have never been more massive, which is fun. But, like, <laughs> but also like I have, I injured my elbow like, um, training because I just, lost the range of motion in my elbow because my biceps are so tight. So I've just got all these injuries and I'm sure that women also get like repetitive injuries, but like I do think I'm at a disadvantage in a weird sort of way. Just literally just carrying the baby, holding the baby is harder for me or more damaging for my body. I feel, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel, I felt that. And I talked to my physio about it actually and she was saying, yes, you're probably right. 
like she was, you know, had to have, I literally go to the physio and she coaches me on like how to do all these things because I have to learn a safe and effective way of doing it because it's not in my biology to do it that as much as I am doing it this easily. Which is really interesting because then that is also where a, a social constraint comes in because you can't, in even in the uh, increasingly open society that we have now, if you said, I've got a... I've got an injury from carrying a baby around. You know, that is a considered a non-masculine thing to do. <laughs> oh, no, you actually, hurt yourself carrying a little baby no. girl. <laughs> no, really, actually, people, you know, people who are most sympathetic to this tend to be other men. <laughs> but, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I, you know, I suspect maybe I'm just coming across as sort of being like complaining, um, which I don't. Well, I think I'm happy to come across as complaining. I'm saying how it is. Um, yeah, I think there is a sort of a thing where it's not not a thing I'm particularly pleased has emerged as a tendency among feminist activists or women who are out there doing things, my colleagues, to um, when things seem to be becoming more equal. So, <coughs> what? Tea went down the wrong way. <laughs> Keep going. So there's a tendency that I've noticed um, among my colleagues, among people who are kind of fighting for change in the world. When, when you get this kind of equalisation or whatever it is... Well, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll try to put it in a better way. Historically speaking, women have done a lot of this work with very little thanks or recognition except from other women <coughs> yes. who understand it. Yeah. And, and that has led to when, when you see this work being done by a man, first of all, it becomes not invisible because for women it's taken for granted. So they feel, historically speaking, that this labour has been invisible and, and unthanked. And so when a man is doing it and complains about it, they're like, well, sucked in, now you get a bit, bit of your own medicine. I find that deeply distasteful. I don't like to see. <laughs> it's this odd idea of of ganging up on a bully and kicking him in a circle, is a deeply unappealing image to me. Well, it's not really a bully. It's like <clears throat> ganging up on someone who looks like the bully. Yes. Who's actually also using yeah the, yeah. the second part of it is using some what some individual as a proxy for what you think they represent. Yeah. which I think is dangerous because you don't know what they actually represent and it leads people to a sort of a resentment and it is the thing that you are arguing against being done to you. Um, the, the idea that, you know, I don't want to sound, I don't want to use the phrase hashtag not all men, but the idea that you're fighting against the fact that women have been treated as just women, not people. Mm. And you're fighting against that idea by trying to give them a taste of their own medicine. It's an urge that we have as individuals in arguments sometimes. If someone's doing something that annoys you, talking in an annoying voice or using an annoying phrase, and you're fighting with them, you'll fling that phrase back in their face in a sort of a bitter triumph of like, now you see what it's like. And it's yeah. so gross. Like, it's so... And it's not useful. Well, it's not pragmatic. I've had this... <clears throat> I've had sort of little flashes, similar flashes of irritation. Exactly that, where... 
you know, I've said, I've talked about various, various ways in which it's hard. And then people almost always, to be honest, women who don't have children have said to me, oh, you know, but of course you get, you know, people praise you because you're a man for doing the same thing as women. And like, you get a lot of recognition. I was like, who's praising me? I actually, in the whole time that I've been doing this, the people who have been really the most supportive about it is other men who sort of think, oh, we, you know, who, who are trying to work, you know, who are working or trying to work um, uh, 10 days a fortnight, it's nine days a fortnight rather, like get a, a day off or trying to take part of the parental leave and they're sort of, that they, um, they, they identify and, they, and they, they kind of see someone who's doing it full time, they're kind of interested and, but other than that, the only woman who's, who's like praised me for it was just like some lady in Peckham who was like cycling past me while I was carrying Lucy along the street. And she was like, oh yes, great work, daddy. Keep up the good work. <laughs> now that was really, that was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> but actually at the time I was watching a mother with a little boy who was just peeing into the gutter and I was just looking really blank and kind of slightly <laughs> horrified. <laughs> it's like peeing in the gutter of Peckham Rye Lane, like into like oncoming cyclists kind of thing. So I just had this weird expression. I suppose she thought, oh, that guy looks really frazzled. He <laughs> was like trying to encourage me. But yeah, but but I, but I just this sort of thing, that, that there are these kind of like narratives that people just subscribe to because they um, they fit a certain ideology or they, but I have, it does not be my experience at all that like that people, you know, it, it, more far more often having far more often than that one time that I can call to mind of having someone like really be super, just like give me like outsized praise for doing nothing much. I've had people patronize me, you know, like <laughs> I had women patronize me or sort of um, kind of engage with me in this slightly awkward way. Like, oh, wow, you really, uh, you're doing that. Kind of like not, not at all what, what the trope of like men get more recognition for just doing things that women never get recognized for. I, that's not been my experience. Not to say that might not be the case in a more, in a, you know, in general, but that's not my experience. It's an interesting, yeah, which is an interesting thing about everyone's experience is very, uh, very individualized. And I think it's sometimes useful to have somebody draw attention to when you have a privilege or when you take something for granted that other people don't have. Well, I think it is a privilege nowadays to even ha be able to have one parent not work and look after the child for a long period of time um, because people are under so much financial pressure. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, that is an unintended consequence of women's emancipation and and the, the progress towards equality in, in employment. Um, that is a consequence of it is that then the economics kind of, the economics... Of having double the workforce mean that the houses cost twice as much, which means that you need to have both parents getting back to work as quickly yeah. as possible. It's convenient how often social movements are most successful where they most closely align with uh, best capitalist outcomes. Yeah. The movement towards equalising men and women did not somehow lead to the traditionally female roles being given the weight of consequence that I feel they probably deserve. 
No, it, it, it led to, yeah, it, it, that's... It led to point. women moving into the kind of more prestigious fields that men were dominating because they'd been closed out of those fields and gaining sort of status and recognition in that men's world, which is, a, I think, an important part of that process. But I think another important part of that process is, and I, I keep saying this on stage, and it always gets a slightly odd reaction, and I pull laughs out of it afterwards, but just going... You can build a person. Like if Elon Musk built a person, you'd give him a Nobel Prize. The, the process of not just building a person in, in the body, you know, creating the, the parts of a person, but then that first year or two or three of life where you are constructing the psychology of a human being, which 15 years down the line, 20 years down the line, leads to a, an adult in society who's capable of having healthy human connections, capable of processing the world in non-aggressive ways, capable of, you know, being a productive member of society. That's actually a huge investment in society. A human life for three years of work and then maybe five years of part-time work, whatever, and then ten years of quarter-time work. A whole human life for that investment seems like a really good deal. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like a good deal. Financially speaking. So why has that not been, why has that sort of still have the same or, or a similar status in society? And, 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 and worse, there are women who want to work and who want to be taken seriously, who feel like they can't, they, they, that it's an either-or situation, that you, you can't have both... Uh, recognition as a as an individual and a role as a mother or parent well they trade off a bit they definitely trade off um i feel that quite keenly i feel sort of uh it's it's quite hard on the ego and sort of and my sense of yeah it is a, it is a it is a gender thing as well as like a sort of a feel a bit emasculated that i'm always like hanging out with mums and like talking about babies and not using my 11 years of university <laughs> to do something you know um, yeah and that's I'm, I'm super interested in that why is it not seen as the equivalent of doing a phd to take a couple of years off and make a person well because the skills are not that or people say they are but i don't think they are it's like a very specific skill set and they're not really that transferable to anything else much nor are PhD skills necessarily. No, but yeah, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I mean, I think they're probably about as transferable. Like you have research skills, you have writing skills. <coughs> yeah, but you have you, what you have is you you have far 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 more acute critical thinking, and and far you develop, you grow your um, self critical or not your self critical, but I don't know your your fairness impulse in your opinion your expression of your opinion or thoughts you, you really do, while doing a you PhD. get much you, you get much better at, at really trying to, to cons- really trying to clarify and not out the the alternatives to the opinion or argument that you espouse yes you, you, and then i think on the that's other useful hand, that's, that's useful that's useful <laughs> in the world but also what is useful in the world is uh, these things that are considered soft skills or feminine skills, which I imagine are honed like a motherfucker when you are bringing up a baby, which is assessing someone else's mood, 
how can you say that's not important in a business environment? You know, multitasking, managing under like extreme stress, extreme pressure, like all of those things I think are also skills, patience <laughs> with stupid people. Mm-hmm. You but know, and irrational yeah. people and, and compassion and empathy and all of those things are actually important in a world. We've just decided that those are irrelevant to business. I don't know if I... Yeah, but they sometimes are irrelevant to business, <laughs> you know. I would de- argue that part of the reason they're irrelevant to business is because business has been shaped by the people who have been successful in business traditionally, which is men. Yeah, but... I don't think but it why, but, but they've been, you know, why have they been successful? Have the... If, if compassion and empathy and, and patience and, like, there is a certain degree of cooperativeness that's obviously essential to business, but, like, you know, huge amount of of consensus building and everything if that were the thing that made you successful in business then all the successful businesses would be run in that way but they're not no i don't think that's true i don't think business works in such an evolutionary way i I draw two uh potential counterpoints to that argument the first is look what business has done to the world um it it's sort of long-term lack of um, compassionate thinking leads to things like the Nestle thing that happened with the milk. It leads to people deciding they want to buy up water in drought-stricken areas. It leads to people... Yeah, but it also leads to global trade bringing, I don't know what it is, 127,000 people out of extreme poverty every day, you know, and the empathy of, the, like, the... the Empathy is not coming into it. People are just acting in their own self-interest. And in that respect, capitalism, it, you know, it is it is far from perfect. And it is that, that sort of businessy mindset. It's far from perfect. And the outcomes are far from perfect and the pollution and everything. But actually, it's done a lot. I mean, we've kind of gone off topic now, but I, I, I find that particular well, that particular trope that, oh, that business and capital no, 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 are sort I'm of not, I'm, I'm being very wrecking the world along all these along all these dimensions. Yes, there are costs, but there are also benefits, and the, some of the benefits are really amazing. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> I'm not falling into that trope though. I'm talking yeah. about the ways in which the growth incentive of like the endless growth incentive of consumer capitalism is driven by this quite masculine set of traits and well, i think but in but um, it so happens that the majority of consumers or those who make the consumption decisions because of all because of these gender roles that 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 people fall into happen to be women consumption is consumption is mostly done by women so then there's you know markets two sides of the supply and there's demand and the, the demand yeah, I, I've, I've thought about this in like obviously these are very sort of traditionally roles that we're arguing about well um, this is just this is just statistical like this yeah. is as you know whether consumption ought to be mostly done by women and and whether that's the right you know calibration of responsibilities and burdens and so on and so forth is beside the point the fact is it is mostly done by women and has mostly been been the decisions of that kind have mostly been made by women for the past yeah, century. Yeah, we've, we've gone off skill sets and into this kind of uh, consumer ethic stuff. Yeah. But I saw a, a guy on the Twitter the other day doing a very long thread, and he's one of these massively traditionalist Christian American men should be the leader of the home, women should be the right hand of the man thing, um, uh, which was kind of pushing, uh, leaning again on these tropes. And I, I don't think it's a... Bad idea to note that 
you know, tropes tend to be useful broad strokes and bad narrow strokes. Yeah. Um, but uh, his idea of, like, the man is the captain of the ship and the woman is the navigator of the ship. And I was like, I think it's probably, if you think of the masculine and the feminine in that kind of way, the masculine is an engine and the woman is, and the feminine is the navigator. In which case, I think that's a more useful way to divide the roles, less less as the man as the head and the woman as the subordinate than two incredibly necessary things for getting where you want to go. The navigation is not just important but essential and the drive is also essential. But then I think everyone has masculine and feminine qualities in themselves. Well, I think I have... I am the exception in that I have more of those qualities that are, that are conceived of as being feminine. But I still don't think that... If I go to go back, I, I still don't think that I react to things or deal with like my particular situation in life in the way that a woman would partly because of socialization and partly because of just testosterone. Yeah. And, it, and, and also if the attribution you don't have testosterone, of as feminine or masculine. <laughs> it's very hard to understand what it, how it drives you. I think there's a really interesting, um, uh, this American life podcast about someone who, where they were interviewing people who for various periods of time, had extremely low or no testosterone and the ways in which it completely, like the just whole experience of life is really different. That just, yeah. it's well, just different. It's just different being a dude guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. And it is different being, I mean, we are so embodied, like all so much of our moods and our ways of thinking and our ways of approaching and our ways of, I think we have these human urges and human impulses and the ways in which they express themselves are so driven by our bodies. If you think about, you know, like on a really brutal level, if I want to pick something up, I will pick it up with my hands because I have hands. You know, if I have a particular hormonal array, I, that'll lead my action in a particular direction. Maybe but not that's even it. Lead I'm, your action in a particular direction, but exert a fair bit of pressure on your cognition in that direction. Well, it's a yeah. fair bit of pressure. And then I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who is in a very traditionally male-dominated industry, and you're speaking from the perspective of someone who's in a very traditionally female-dominated industry. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that there are, you know, we have both kind of gone, <laughs> and entirely possibly because we shared a hormonal array in the womb so we like you know what i mean like well i mean that sounds gross but you know what i mean i know what you mean i know and we grew and because we grew up together and so that our social our understanding of social roles were much more kind of individualized we had basically the same treatment as children um and i think in some ways that felt freeing to me i'm making i'm making just for the benefit of you're making a skeptical face. Yeah, I'm making a skeptical I'm, face. I'm, I'm weav- look, and the- bobbing my head and from side to side and shrugging. And kind you of know like what gurning. this podcast is. This yeah. is exploring ideas that I don't necessarily yeah, yeah, yeah. believe or understand or I, fully I, thought I, through. I this don't know about- what I think about that. I don't really think about that. But maybe to return, return to my original point, let's carry on my rant, because I would like to write an article. It's good to organise my Yeah, it's good. But, you know, like... Well, this is, I'd, yeah, you don't have I, to have I would, I would love to give another example of the ways in which it's comp well it is at least problematic to use a very like academic type word or uh, 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 complicated in the true sense as in like something is getting in the way yeah <laughs> there are compli- there are there are complications in just 
carrying out this role. Um, there's a lovely gym near me, um, and the people, the managers there are really nice, and it's a great facility. And <clears throat> I found out that they have um, that they have a playpen there, and I tried a gym where there's a crèche, uh, uh, but I. Uh, I didn't like the person who was running the crèche and I also, and, and Lucy, like I'm sure she could have got used to it, but I don't know if I felt like going through the pain of like dropping her off and leaving her to cry for an hour while I had a really relaxing, like workout <laughs> worrying about my baby screaming in just like 50 meters away, but ignoring it. Like, you know, that was not really, I was not really up for that. But so, so anyway, I found this place has a little playpen, which is like in the gym, like it's in the big kind of warehousey space of this like open, open, like crossfit type gym. And like, so I could actually interact with her while I was working out and she finds it hilarious when I do like push-ups or squats anyway. So like she kind of laughs and the huffing and puffing is really amusing to her. She makes little noises and like bounces <laughs> up and down and cackles to herself um, maniacally when I do these odd, you know, not because that sort of stuff is funny to babies, anything that doesn't that is like out of the ordinary um, rhythms of behavior. So anyway, found this great place and worked out there a couple of times and it was super fun and Lucy had a good time and I had a great time. And even when the gym, there was not many people there, I just let her roam free and just like was very careful. Um, <laughs> not to let a drop, weight drop on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, and not to let someone just like be like clean and jerking like 100 kilos and then like drop it on her face. But anyway, I just, I hadn't worked out how, what their timetable was and how it worked but I knew that they had some times where like mothers came with kids for like, it's to have a class, which is like for postnatal kind of strength, which is fantastic. Really important. Um, anyway, just by chance, one morning I showed up to the gym because I thought, Oh, I'll just feel like a workout. And, uh, and, um, to, to my, um, great delight, there were heaps of kids in the playpen. And I thought this would be so good. Lisa's going to have a great time with the children and everything. And I didn't realize that this was the postnatal, um, strength class and like I came into the room and someone like immediately sort of um, you know very um, in a very business like way came up to me and said oh are you a spouse of um, are you the husband of or partner of one of the women doing the class um, and I said oh no um, I, I, I didn't even know the class was on I just brought um, Lucy along and I saw the other kids and so I thought I might just put her in the playpen and and, and, and they said oh well there's a there's a um, this this class is postnatal class, um, and and I said, oh, uh, is it you know? Can I like maybe I can just like work out on the other side of the gym and like I'll try not to be in the way. But even as I was saying it, I could tell that, that was a no go. And this this I think she was the coach of the class was like very defensive on behalf of you know sort of fiercely defending and advocating on behalf of her brood of not brood is a pretty sexist word, but like on behalf of her like of, of her of her, her delicate student, women her who delicate are feeling person, very vulnerable yeah, who are, self-conscious yeah and exactly that. exactly and and I thought oh geez I should really just leave I'm making people feel very uncomfortable and it wasn't like it wasn't as though they threw me out although they did certainly make me feel uncomfortable but like I was acutely conscious that I was making probably making the other women really uncomfortable and I should just go the moral of the story being it's complicated because they're probably right and that probably should be a a women's only space because, you know, like there are so many physical um issues that would that you that you probably wouldn't want a strange man to be um 
present while you kind of work through them. And I won't go into the grisly details, but, you know. Well, you don't want a, a lady who's there going, um, I'm not sure if I can do this exercise because my pelvic floor has been ripped in half. Or more just like, oh, I've just wet myself, excuse me. Um, <laughs> I was thinking more along those lines or just like... That too. All manner of emissions and effluvia um, and just situations that are kind of like very, yeah, that you'd feel very embarrassed about or not to mention worried or, you know, anxious about dealing with like a strange man while you're incredibly vulnerable and doing all this stuff. Um, Yeah, and there are degrees of that anyway. Like I think women probably sometimes feel quite uncomfortable in gyms where there are men and they're like, you know, just yeah. women just feel because they are, because they are. But with the additional element of your entire hormonal array is telling you that a strange man is a threat. Yeah, well, what I mean, but yeah. But the point being, like, that's all well and good. And I don't even think I disagree with, like, the fact that that coach was there, like, very firmly, immediately confronting me and sort of defending the space and so on and so forth. But the upshot for me is. Well, what is the upshot for me? Like, where do I go? There aren't that many. But um, you can't put your baby in the creche with the other babies yeah. at the time when that would be quite nice. When it would be the most nice. And where I might actually meet, like, you know, I sometimes meet dads, but, but quite rarely. But I might, you know, make a friend and have company. And I find all of the, so many of the spaces, like going to the baby classes and stuff, like, yeah, it's like, it's not to my, <laughs> you know, like, First of all, yeah, I'm, I feel a bit out of place. It's not, I'm not at my best in that space, put it like that. Whereas in a gym, like, I am comfortable and, like, happy and it's something that I would like to do is, like, kind of You'd have a work. You'd love a gym buddy who I would had love a baby a gym, yeah. Lucy's <laughs> Yeah, I would love that. I would really love that. Yeah, so it's just a little bit, you know, that's just a, a rather long story, but illustrating the fact that it's a bit complicated and it's not just a matter of, like, in... in that, that, and that is just one of dozens of little frictions that, that punctuate the life of a stay-at-home male mother. <laughs> well, here's the thing about it being a stay-at-home male mother or being an outlier of any kind. Of being, of being yes, of being a full-time baby-caring father, yeah. Yeah, well, this is the thing, I think, of being an outlier, um, which is that outliers... I read a really interesting article, I think it was Jonathan Haidt, um, being an outlier is extremely difficult for the outlier, but extremely good for society. So it's very good for society to have people who challenge norms and who break up, uh, you know, homogenous ways of thinking and who are extraordinary in various ways or unusual in various ways. But you're the trailblazer. The trailblazer has to step on all of the broken twigs and the trailblazer has to wade through the snow while everyone else gets to walk along behind you. But I never set out to be a trailblazer and I don't even know if I, you know, I, I'm fairly, um, you know, I don't think that I can form, like my general outlook and opinions probably are not the outlook and, and opinions on all manner of things, but like gender relations and so on. So you're probably picking it up, probably noticing that you might ascribe to someone who's chosen, who, who's who's in this situation, and, and it just you know, it it a lot of it. Well, you have you have like, a very interesting mix of ideas that range from conservative to liberal. Yeah, and I, yeah, and, and you know, I'm on board with all manner of feminist, um, I don't know what you'd say, arguments or positions and contentions, and not on board with other ones like. 
you know, and I'm very, and I, and I, and I am experiencing, I'm, I'm living the various <clears throat> complexities and, um, tangles of this, this particular, like, feminist dream, right? Where the, where the mother, the, the, the woman is the breadwinner and the man is the, um, the parent takes on the caring role. Yeah. But, you know, just, but on the other hand, I suppose the fact that I am not, that I haven't resisted it, that I've, that I've, that, that life has played out in a particular way is because I'm not also not adverse to those things exactly, you know, like, well, this is, I think, the uncomfortable thing about reality, about the realisation of any dream, about the execution of any thesis or hypothesis or, you know, revolution, is that eventually the rubber hits the road and you realise that life is a whole lot more complicated than it, than it was in your dream or in your imagination or in your speculation or in your plan. You know, well, my, my no plan survives yeah. first engagement with the enemy. My sense is that, that that things, you know, a lot of things that there there are many changes that could happen, you know, like if there was a dads and babies class, but I don't think it's probably economically viable to have a dads and baby class for the like, you know, you can have the mums and babies class for the like five hundred women in the surrounding square kilometer with babies, and then you know, and out of that you only have to you only have to get ten percent of those people at, yeah subscribing to your gym right well if you get 10% of the men you probably got two yeah yeah you know so why would you do it it's not worth it it doesn't make sense so but maybe like if if people do it more often but you know there's a chicken and egg problem there and I think (coughs) yeah so there are many things that I think that if people who anyone who's really committed to um to promoting this particular arrangement that I'm living, there are things that can be done, just practical things and making more like, you know, the development. And I suppose I shouldn't just say it should be done. Like there are things I could do. I could try and start like a dad's group. I could start. But anyway, that being beside the point, but I think there are also other things that can't be done. You know, like I can't, like where we're at a disadvantage to a couple where the the like for a breastfeeding couple for example to return to that where the mother is not working and the 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 father is working because i'm the one who is like doing the settling because i'm not working at night and our baby's not a great sleeper but throughout the whole most of the year like I can't do the bre- I can't breastfeed. Uh, so settling her is harder. So settling her is harder, or both of us have to be awake. It's not you know. So we're paying for it with our lives, <laughs> with our lifespan. Um, we pay for it with our bones. You know, like that's how I feel physically, and it would do well. It would behove the proponents who want who who feel like they want to advocate for this scenario to be aware of the frictions. Um, and I don't know if there are solutions. Maybe there are. Maybe there aren't. Um, maybe it is a matter of just enough men doing it that the market starts to make sense. But but I just this is my feeling. It's like I don't know that many other men who would do it. 
Yeah. Who would do it get in the current situation and who would do it even with many improvements? Like, why would you put yourself through it? Um, not that I'm unhappy. To, like, I'm, I'm happy with what I'm doing. You know, I'm happy with what I'm doing. But it's incredible. I wouldn't hard. have it any other way, but I just, this is my suspicion. It's not based on evidence, particularly other than my own experience, but I, I don't think you're going to get to gender parity in parenting. You just, I wish, I, you know, I don't even know if I wish that it, I don't even know if I wish that that were the case. I'm not sure what I think about that. Well, that's good. I'm not sure that what I think about that is the, the moral of this podcast. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug or direct people towards of yours or anything you've been consuming that's been interesting? Um, yeah, yeah, nothing of mine particularly. I haven't been doing too much. I've been writing very esoteric. I wrote one article, but I don't think anyone's going to be super interested in like a very, very long esoteric article on like copyright and incentive structures in online content uh, economies but one thing I found really useful um, is I don't know if there's time to open up another kind of conversation one thing I found useful is well I have time it's just how long your baby sleeps when she sleeps well if she wakes up we'll just cut it short but I've been listening to the Oxford University Future Makers podcast where I've forgotten this I've forgotten the host unfortunately and I've forgotten the the school or faculty or um, institute that runs it, but there is a there is a research center that's devoted to kind of um, uh, long term and medium term like uh, risks and and issues for the future. And like I think the first season was on AI, and this season's on climate change. I think that it is helpful, um, both for those who aren't interested in climate change to actually get a sense of how serious the issues are and for those who are very concerned to perhaps uh, 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 I think that there's a sort of there is a bit of a group polarization happening and that those people who are very concerned tend to talk and discuss the issues only with other people who are very concerned and there's it is a it is is one of the most replicable phenomena in social science that in that situation people get pushed to the more extreme sort of frantic most shrill and frantic iteration of that view and and, and that's the, and this is quite a calm and measured and balanced um exploration of some of the issues so far um so for example i was uh, i've been i've went to extinction rebellion uh protests a couple of times and and they're all manner you know sort of like oh like the one slogan that you see around is like the world's burning you've got 12 years and like otherwise to climate disaster and in fact certainly you know there's the all one of the head or lead authors of the ipcc report on climate change was actually explaining what the 12 years really means and like you know he seemed to be saying you know it's not like you have to be net carbon net zero in 12 years although that would of course be good but in order to limit climate change to 1.5 degrees he was saying it has to be something more in the order of 30 or 40 percent reduction which for which we have our work cut out you know people need to get on you know everyone political business individual everyone needs to get on their bikes and, and sort that out but this sort of like this well, uh, the, the pan, i think the problem with that particular line of discourse is that people mistake th- and i do this on a personal level all of the time 
I think that if I'm worried enough about something, that makes a difference to how much I'm doing about it, that my feelings about it matter. Whereas, in fact, it needs to be, if it's going to change, and it needs to change, very pragmatic. People are driven mad by being confronted with problems that they cannot solve, that seem desperate. Well, so that, well what I hear all the time is, oh, it's already too late, and sort of all those conspiratorial things that, oh, the climate scientists say, like, you've got to do this to keep it to 1.5 degrees, but actually climate scientists between them, among themselves say that it's going to be more like 4 degrees, or, oh, now there's, there's a tipping point, you know, the models aren't accounting for a tipping point. Well, yeah, the models aren't accounting for... There are some models which in which a tipping point is a possibility, but that's not the majority of the models. And I think that, like, I don't know what the science is, but I'm far... I think that it's more sensible for non-scientists to um, take the word of the scientific consensus and not the word of the most alarmist positions and think about climate change as a matter of risk management, which is not to say that the disaster mightn't happen, that the tipping point mightn't happen. It's sort of awful to have to acknowledge that, but that's not the majority view that it's especially likely to happen they just don't know which is bad enough as it is but you're not going to persuade um people who are reluctant to take action to do anything if you say to them that it's already too late you know that only just you know then people just develop a fortress mentality and they'll just you know and it, it, it sort of smacks of an analogous thing might be saying to a drug addict drugs are bad drugs are the devil when they've clearly got something good out of drugs. <laughs> you know, saying uh, it's already too late, it's already a disaster, we're ruined. Well, it and is a disaster. It is a disaster. But singing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, a, it's not a very good, useful argument. I, you just have to be, you have to be, to use the, yeah, to, you have to be politic, you have to be pragmatic. And if it really is such a desperate situation, don't lead with everyone has to give up urbanization and everything that, you know, and and modernity and all of these things are bad because even if that were the case you got to you yeah. got to like you, you know you've got a very heavy wagon to push and you you've got to first just get the wheels rolling before you start yes. you know yes start with meat free mondays don't start with bees or slavery yeah yeah <laughs> um, um yeah but to do, just draw us, uh, I just wanted to draw a little loop over the previous uh, topic that I was thinking about, um, and then before we wrap this up, um, which is I was thinking about the parenting, the parenthood uh, process. Yeah. And I think I've forgotten what I was going to say. No, I, I haven't forgotten what I was going to say, which is that it's worth pointing out probably should have done this like as an initial uh, note for the whole conversation when you talk about things like breastfeeding being optimal or the mother or both parents being present or you know having the feminine and the masculine and all of those things as optimal in child rearing and there's good data to show that breastfeeding is healthy and so on and so forth and then people worry about saying making statements like that because then women who can't breastfeed feel incredibly guilty or women who yeah. don't want to breastfeed feel incredibly guilty or uh, to, to, to father families feel incredibly guilty because they're not providing the optimal yeah. gender balance for their children. Yes, thank you for helping to take my foot out of my mouth. <laughs> no, 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 but, the, <laughs> but thing, yeah, yeah. The, th the thing that is worth noting and the thing that I know that you have kind of already 
said in your head or yeah, yeah. is part of your statement. I'm taking it as given, yes. I'm taking Which these things that, as given. That is that life is not optimal. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. we everybody wants to do the best that they can. Uh, again, that's not a broad state. There's plenty of people who treat their children terribly. Most good people want to do the right thing by their child. And the reality is we are all imperfect operating in imperfect systems. So all you can do is within the range of options available to you, whether you're a single mother who has to go to work and leave their child in childcare with strangers or whatever. Or if it you is. don't happen to be, if you don't happen to be like, as we, you know, I guess if you if you're in a situation like us where you can afford for one only one of you to work, you count as very wealthy and privileged. So, yes, I'm all not of that. trying to tell people. I'm not trying to pass judgment on anyone. I, all I'm trying to do is describe my own experience. And I'm certainly not saying, yes, women who have chosen not to breastfeed or to be um, in any way um, criticised or um, demeaned or any... I'm not trying to say any of that. And there is also a secondary part of that, which is there are so many things that are hardships that happen in life that, you know, that are suboptimal, that end up having unexpected and unforeseen positive consequences yeah which i may not have yet seen you know there is there is any number of incredibly um potent actors in human history who are who are probably suffering deeply or have suffered deeply or part of their genius is that it came out of a terrible home environment or whatever so it's not worth uh i think getting tied up in you know, the absolute best case scenario and the fact that you can't bring up your child on absolutely 100% organic breast milk from super healthy female Vikings. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I would hope the breast milk is organic. I suppose if you take antibiotics, it's not. But um, no, that's. I mean, that that sort of prompts me to say something more about it, which is, or two things. One is that, you know, I don't mean to moan about this. You know, I'm not trying to complain. That's not my object here, but maybe it sounds like it. I'm just trying to uh, uh, articulate and identify friction that I think is particular to my circumstance. And I'm just trying to, pro- I'm just trying important. to think it through. So that's one. Um, and, you know, I'm very conscious that my, that, you know, I'm not sort of trying to, trying to make myself out as a martyr who's having some particular hardship and so on and so forth. I'm very conscious that in many ways due to other, all manner of other circumstances and things I'm, you know, I have it great. And my parenting, the conditions in which I'm doing this are amazing. Right. Yeah. So that's, as that's, our, as our uh, esteemed father has said, you know, it's impossible. It's impossible to have children, like to, to have that. Well, I think he says the rush. <laughs> he says it's impossible to have a baby. You just have to do it. Yeah. Like there's no way of doing it perfectly. There's no. There are ways that you can try and make it better or easier or more nourishing for the child or better developmental circumstances, but. You know, it is actually impossible to do it perfectly. Yeah. So, the, so, so is that one? And I'm not trying. You know, that's not been my intention. Oh, I figured then, out how to oh, tie the two arguments oh, together. Oh, can I say my second yes. thing, which I've already lost track of? No, sorry. Um, never mind the second one. I'll have to come back to it. I was going to say it's impossible to do it perfectly, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try, which works for parenthood and for the climate change yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A neat little bow. That's right. Um, I can't remember what the second point was. Um, oh, yes, was that, yes, is that, uh, you know, the focus of what I've been talking about has been friction and, and difficulties in the ways in which 
um, you know, is the experience of a male um, caregiver for children is different from the experience of women, in my opinion, and so on and so forth. But it should go without saying that it comes with amazing rewards as well and that, you know, I have... You know, I, I have a relationship with my daughter that I suspect many men could only dream of and I have a connection with her and time with her and everything that that is, you know, incredibly precious and I'm very conscious of that and grateful for that. Although I do notice that, like, <laughs> my daughter still prefers um, my wife if she can get her. <laughs> so, you know, but um, but that's, you know, that's fine. I don't, I don't mind that though. But, well, there's a, that's yeah. the thing. There are these some, sometimes, you know, brilliant outcomes. I We should wrap this up, but I always think the nice thing about our mum being sick is we got so much time with her. More than most people get. Because we, because we, because we spent so much time in our family home trying just to sort of being around. Yeah. More than, rather than going out and doing our own thing a little bit. Yeah. yeah and well, that has its massive downsides, but yeah. that was a great thing. That was a great thing, yeah. Very, very lucky. Mm. Right, thank you so much for having tea with me. Yeah, I hope that was coherent. I have no idea. It's okay. Um, you're, you're high on not having slept for a year. No, no, well, I've actually had, I had a little, a, few, a couple of days off, which was, off, and got two nights of sleep, which was unbelievable. But, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'll have you get back again soon. Today, 
We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lolly rifle, doll, lolly rifle, day.